Welcome, and thanks for checking out the Living Word Family Church Sermon Podcast. Before we get to the message, we'd like to invite you to check out Living Word Family Church if you don't already have a church home. For more information, you can check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. Good evening. I'm glad to see a few of you snuck in here during praise and worship. Solid Rockers, I'm so glad you're here tonight because this place would have looked really empty without you guys uh, earlier on. But yeah, give them a hand. Thanks for being with us tonight. Thank you. Next week, you'll be back there. Whether Matt's uh, back in the saddle yet or not, you will be back there. We've got a plan, okay? Uh, Tonight's message, I did not write for you guys, but I did prepare knowing you would be in here. Uh, So I did have you guys in mind. Matt Kreider, by the way, says to tell all of you that he loves you and appreciates you very, very much as his church family. Solid rockers, he loves and misses you like crazy. Hopes to see you soon. And before I get started, I hate to do this, but Pastor Mike is like Mr. Perfect, and so I I don't get very many opportunities to get a dig in at him. You know, he's the best dressed, most energetic. Everything is just so perfect about the guy. But did anybody besides me notice that right after he dissed country music, he quoted a country song with uh, going through hell, keep on going, might get out before the devil even knows you're dead? Anyway. (laughs) I know, it's not always country. (laughs) All right. Hey, we've been uh, working through John's gospel on Wednesday nights, and uh, I think it's been rich. I have been I've been blessed preparing these and delivering these. I trust you have in uh, listening and receiving. And we're going to pick up more or less where we left off a couple of weeks ago, but we're not going to get very far because there's a whole sermon wrapped up in one simple request we're going to read about, and that's what I'm going to preach tonight. But we, uh, I think we kind of left off in chapter 12, really with verses 9 through 11. Uh, Let's just read that here really quickly. John chapter 12, beginning in verse 9. Now a great many of the Jews knew that he was there, and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. But the chief priests plotted to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. This is where we were. We read about Jesus, this one of his greatest miracles. He goes to the grave of Lazarus, his friend, And Lazarus had been dead, not just dead, but buried. He'd been dead for four days. Has him roll the stone away, hollers, Lazarus, come forth. He comes wrapped up in his grave clothes. And everybody there witnesses this resurrection. Now, prior to that, these chief priests, the Jewish authorities, had already begun to plot to put Jesus to death. He was, and we can't rehash all of their reasoning. We know ultimately the devil was behind this, but... Actually, ultimately, God was behind this because he's going to lay down his life, but this was not a godly motive that they had. They felt threatened. Their authority, their uh, public standing, everything about everything they loved about their life was threatened by Jesus and his ministry. And not only that, they thought that if the people really got behind Jesus as the Messiah, what this would uh, turn out to be was a revolt that Rome would have no choice but to stomp down on. And so they saw their whole way of life threatened, not just their own personal authority, but they thought this can't end well. If the, if, Rome, if the Roman government sees the people rise up getting behind Jesus, they're going to 
quell this thing as an uprising, and their foot will be on our necks again. So their idea was, better that Jesus die than all of us uh, go back under this kind of a yoke of bondage to Rome, even though they really already were. So, as they, they no sooner make this uh, decision, than Jesus goes to Bethany, raises Lazarus from the dead, and we see that the uh, chief priests decide, you know what, we're going to have to kill him too. Because now this, ra- this particular miracle is causing more and more, at a much more rapid pace, more and more people to believe in Jesus. They cannot deny that Jesus uh, is who he says he is. They, they're finding it, the, the Pharisees are finding it much more, much more difficult to combat this notion because he just raised a guy from the dead. Strange that they don't stop themselves and consider the implications. Well, he did raise a guy from the dead. Maybe we need to rethink some things. No, instead, they're like, let's just kill Lazarus too. So, now we did skip ahead and we read uh, toward the end of chapter 12 where we talked about how some of the Jews, some of the Jewish authorities actually believed in Jesus, but they didn't confess him. And Romans uh, 10, chapter 9 says, you believe and confess unto salvation. Now, they believed because they were smart and they couldn't deny the things that their eyes show, uh, told them, but they didn't confess because they, it says they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. So there's a, we'll get to that again. But I kind of want to pick it up here, and so we will, beginning in verse 12. Still in John chapter 12, verse 12, the next day, a great multitude that had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took, palm, uh, took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. And when you see this, I think most of you know this, when you're reading this in your Bible and it's in italics like that, it's quoting the Old Testament. His disciples, verse 16, did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. Therefore, uh, and I'll stop there for a second. This is the triumphal entry. That's my sermon for Palm Sunday, and you heard a version of that recently, so I'm not going to spend, uh, I'm, I'm, going to sp- I'm going to spend hardly any time on that tonight. But this is the moment when Jesus comes into Jerusalem, and he's riding on the colt of a donkey because the Old Testament prophesied that the Messiah would ride in on the colt of a donkey. And, and again, what it's saying here is the disciples, when they saw this happen, they weren't putting two and two together. But later, after he rose from the dead, after he ascended into heaven, then they're like, oh, yeah, he did that. Now we remember. We go back and read these Old Testament scriptures. He's fulfilling prophecy. Okay? So, and as he comes in, the people are behind him saying, Hosanna, save now. If you're the Messiah, be the Messiah. Uh, lead us in a rebellion against Rome. What's, uh, all this stuff, there's, a, again, there's a great sermon wrapped up in there. I just don't have time to preach it tonight, so we're going to move on. Uh, And look at verse 17. Read the next few verses. Therefore the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of his tomb and raised him from the dead bore witness. For this reason, the people also met him because they had heard that he had done this sign. The Pharisees therefore said among themselves, you see that you are accomplishing nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. 
things are getting out of hand. Part of the reason there was such a great crowd to welcome him in Jerusalem was because of Lazarus. It's like, wow, this is a big, big deal. We have seen the healings. Many of these people maybe had experienced healings, but now they had heard uh, and seen, many of them seen, irrefutable evidence that this man had raised another man from the dead. And so they're like, this has got to be the Messiah. They crowd in, and now the Pharisees are like, things are getting out of hand. We already know we, ha- we can't just kill Jesus. We have to kill Lazarus too. How many more are we going to have to kill? Is this whole thing too late? The whole world, they said, has gone after him. Now, next week we will begin to look at Jesus' final words to, uh, to the public at large. He has a lot more to say in this book. Uh, but we're about to read, and not tonight, but next week, pretty much the last things he has to say to people beyond just his disciples. Uh, that this is all as he's facing his crucifixion. He is heading into the last week of his life here, all right? But first, I want you to see this. And this is where we will camp out the rest of the night. Still in chapter 12, beginning in verse 20. Now, there were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast. Now, let me stop there for a second and explain. This is a Jewish feast. They're up there. They're here for the Passover. And there were people scattered throughout the region, not just there in in, uh, Israel, but in the surrounding uh, regions, who were, uh, there might be Jews who were living abroad, but also there were what were known as proselytes. And in this case, these were Greek proselytes. They were um, uh, Greek culture, Greek educated, Greek language, but they worshipped the Jewish God. And so they came to Jerusalem for the Passover. And this was probably something, if they lived anywhere nearby, they were in the habit of doing. And so that's who these guys were. Verse 20, there were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast. Then they came to Philip. This is one of Jesus' disciples. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew, and in turn, Andrew and Philip told Jesus. Now, Philip, it says, who was from Bethsaida. Peter and Andrew, everybody knows who Peter is, right? Peter and Andrew are brothers. They were also from Bethsaida. This is along the northern edge of Israel, up in the, the... you know, way north of Jerusalem. And north of that were the Syrophoenician people. You've got Tyre and Sidon. You remember, most of you remember the names of these cities. Jesus prophesied against them. And it has even been suggested that these Greeks that it's referring to here um, possibly even knew Philip. That maybe they, they, they lived close enough, they were familiar with him, uh, but they were... But these Greeks that were in town probably were from nearby and therefore, you know, maybe just lived north of Bethsaida. But whether they knew Philip or didn't, that doesn't really matter. It is significant that Philip is the one they reached out to because Philip is a Greek name. All of Jesus' disciples had Hebrew names except for Philip and Andrew. Philip and Andrew are Greek names. You think that doesn't make any difference, but let me ask, if you're visiting a town in another country, say you're, you're visiting Paris, 
All right, you're in France, and you're chatting with the locals, and you're talking, you're trying to get some information, and they begin to introduce themselves. Ah, oh, this, this is Pierre, this is Jean-Luc, this is Francois, this is Etienne, and this, this is Steve Smith. Who are you going to go to if you need some information right now? Maybe it's like, you, this it. they all live right there in Paris. They all know their way around. Maybe you're trying to get tickets to a show. Maybe you're trying to get an inn somewhere. Who are you going to go to? You're going to go to Steve Smith, right? Because you can relate to him. This is a guy who is from my culture. So they go to Philip because they recognize this is a guy with a name like ours. And what do they say? Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Now, in all likelihood, they had just witnessed, along with everybody else there at the feast, they saw the triumphal entry. So they just saw Jesus. But they're looking for an introduction. When they say, we want to see Jesus, they're like, hey, you know him. Can you introduce us? Why? Well, there are specific reasons why, and I'll get to those in a second. But I also want you to see this. There is something about the greatness of Jesus. It's undeniable. It is magnetic. And millions of people who don't know Jesus still know about him because of just the greatness of who he is. I'm going to read some quotes that people have made, uh, some observations people have made about Jesus over the years. This first one uh, is probably the longest that, I, that I'll share tonight. And it's not very long, but this is from James Stewart. He's a Scottish theologian. And he wrote years ago that Jesus was the meekest and lowliest of all the sons of men. Yet, he spoke of coming on clouds of heaven with the glory of God. He was so austere that evil spirits and demons cried out in terror at his coming. Yet he was so genial and winsome and approachable that children loved to play with him and the little ones nestled in his arms. His presence at the innocent gaiety of a village wedding was like the presence of sunshine. No one was half so compassionate to sinners, yet no one ever spoke such red-hot scorching words about sin. A bruised reed he would not break, His whole life was love. Yet on one occasion he demanded of the Pharisees how they ever expected to escape the damnation of hell. He was a dreamer of dreams and a seer of visions, yet for sheer stark realism he has all of our stark realists soundly beaten. He was a servant of all, washing the disciples' feet, yet masterfully he strode into the temple, and the hucksters and money changers fell over one another to get away from the... from the mad rush and the fire they saw blazing in his eyes. He saved others, yet at the last himself he did not save. There is nothing in history like the union of contrasts which confronts us in the Gospels. The mystery of Jesus is the mystery of divine personality. Uh, Church historian Philip Schaff wrote this, This Jesus of Nazareth... Nazareth, without money and arms, conquered more millions than Alexander, Caesar, Muhammad, and Napoleon. Without science, he shed more light on things human and divine than all philosophers and scholars combined. Without the eloquence of schools, he spoke such words of life as were never spoken before or since and produced effects which lie beyond the reach 
of orator or, po- or, or poet. Without writing a single line, he set more pens in motion and furnished themes for more sermons, orations, discussions, learned volumes, works of art, and songs of praise than the whole army of great men of ancient and modern times. Uh, historian William Leckie, William Leckie, by the way, was, is not a believer, was not a believer, late 1800s, early 1900s, Irish historian. He was a skeptic, and he had some harsh things to say about the church, but he said this, Jesus has exercised so deep an influence that it may be truly said that the simple record of three short years of active life has done more to regenerate and soften mankind than all the disquisitions of philosophers and all the exhortations of moralists. This has indeed been the wellspring of whatever is best and purest in the Christian life. And H.G. Wells, also not a believer, said this. He was a novelist and historian. He said, I am an historian. I am not a believer, but I must confess as a historian that this penniless preacher from Nazareth is irrevocably the very center of history. Jesus Christ is easily the most dominant figure in all history. There's no doubt. Our whole, the whole world's calendar is divided into before Jesus and after Jesus, even though they don't use those terms anymore. So they, 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 they now just have common era and before common era. But the dates are precisely Jesus and before Jesus and since Jesus, right? Now, Jesus was not yet a historical figure in that sense. He was a historical figure in that he was real, but he had not, you know, the, the, the effect that he's had through the centuries had not taken place. He's still walking the earth during this time. But he was certainly famous already. These Greeks had come for the feast, but there was a bonus this year because they had heard about Jesus. These guys had heard about him. They had almost certainly heard about Lazarus. This was the hot topic of the day. Everybody was talking about it. And now they want to meet him. And who do they ask? The person in, their, in this group that is most like themselves. The one person they feel the slightest connection to just because he has a name like theirs. So, people, my message tonight is a really simple one. You are the closest link somebody has to Jesus. These guys, whether they actually knew Philip previously knew at least two things about him. He was a Greek, or at least from a Greek community, and he knew Jesus. What do people know about you? And what do they have in common with you? One of the principles of relationship evangelism, and when I use that phrase, let me explain myself. Most of you know what I'm talking about, but there are several different kinds of evangelism, but maybe on uh, polar opposites would be this. Uh, one is cold contact evangelism. You see guys like Ray Comfort and uh, Kirk Cameron doing this man on the street kind of thing where they just confront somebody they've never met, go up with a microphone, start asking them questions, and they're very effective at it sometimes. It's not something that everybody's good at. Now, I've gone out and done it just to say I've done it, and it's, it's, not, it's not my wheelhouse, okay? I really do think the biblical model is relationship evangelism. You know, you make an acquaintance, 
the acquaintance becomes a friendship. You start discussing. It leads to conversion. And then from convert to disciple. All through the, all in the uh, context of a relationship. But the, one of the principles of relationship evangelism is just that. That we use the things that connect us with people to connect people to Christ. But if that's going to happen, they have to know that you know him. How did they know that Philip knew Jesus? Because he was with him. They could see him hanging out with him. I don't think they had T-shirts on that said security or staff or anything like that. There was something about the way he moved in the certain circles there in proximity to Jesus that made them understand that this is a guy who knows him. This is a guy who can introduce us. Now, people might not be able to see it like that with us. The physical Jesus is not walking around with us. But let me ask you this. You ever notice this? I'll start with this. Parents, I know I'm not the only one. Do you know when your child comes home and they start talking, have there been times at least when you're like, I know exactly who they've been hanging out with the last couple hours because of the way they're talking. I'm not saying because they're cussing or anything like that. I'm just talking about the things they're talking about, the way they're carrying themselves. They're like, ah, you've been hanging out with so-and-so, haven't you? Anybody know what I'm talking about? Does anybody, any other parent know what I'm talking about in here? Yeah. Friends. Now, now, youth, never mind parents. How many of you have friends? And you're like, you love them, but just like sometimes you just you grit your teeth. It's like, oh, they're always like this after they've been hanging out with so-and-so. Do you know what I'm talking about? Look at all those hands. Yeah, there are. See, what happens? You become like who you hang around, whether you mean to or not. This was something in the army that was a constant joke. There's a language called army creole, which simply means it's peppered with a lot of cuss words. And people, I used to hear it in the field all the time. People are like, well, what am we going to do when we go back home? Well, I've got to learn to speak without this again. You know, just when, you, when you're around guys who talk a certain way, it's very easy to start talking a certain way, and sometimes it's hard to shut that off. You become like who you hang around. So number one, be careful who you hang around. If you want to become a certain way, then hang out with certain people and avoid others. But also there's this. If people are going to know, if they're going to come to you ever, and this, this is like anybody who has a heart to see people come to Christ, it's like the dream scenario to have somebody come up and say, can you tell me about Jesus? You know, sometimes we rack our brain. How can I work Jesus into the conversation? I feel like I need to be preaching the gospel. Jesus did say to share. Uh, how, do I, how do I ever, you're looking for ways to shoehorn him into the conversation. These guys just come up to Philip. We want to meet Jesus. Wouldn't that be great? It would be great for most of us. So how are they going to, what is it about you that's going to cause them to come up and say that? Well, you've got to be like him. How do you be like him? You hang around him. How do you hang around Jesus? That's where I, I guess where I'm going to wind up here. And there are three ways I can think of right off the bat, without even thinking hard. One is spend time in the Word. Jesus himself is the living Word of God. So if we spend time in the written Word of God, we are going to know Jesus. We are hanging out with the Word. We are hanging out with him. Scripture memorization. This is all part of hanging out with the Word. Learning to speak this Word is learning to talk like him.
Next one would be prayer. When you spend time in conversation, bearing your soul, praying to God in the name of Jesus Christ. What's happening? You're spending time in his presence. What happens when you spend time in the presence of somebody? It rubs off on you. You become a little more like them. And finally, this is what we're doing here tonight. Go to church. Who are we? We are the body of Christ. When we're hanging out with one another, we really are, in a very real way, hanging out with Jesus, hanging out with his body. And you look around and like, I don't really want to become like that guy. No, it's who we are together that should speak of the presence of Jesus. Finally, you can turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. If you guys don't have a Bible, we will get you one. Just let us know right after church, okay? 1 Peter chapter 2. This is one of my favorite passages. And uh, I've, I've preached whole sermons on this, and obviously I'm not going to tonight because we're about five minutes from wrapping up. But let me read these two verses. 1 Peter 2. 11, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. Now what's this saying? There's a lot of responsibility packed into that passage. When it says Gentiles there, you need to read that as non-believers. This is what Peter means. Peter is talking to believers, and uh, Gentile was just kind of a code word for unbeliever there. He said, now you live your life in such a way that it is honorable, and you need to be especially careful to do this when you are among unbelievers. So that they'll glorify God in the day. It's, It's like by observing your good works... Something's going to cause them to glorify God in the day of visitation. Now, what's the day of visitation? Some people say that means Jesus coming back, because he is coming back. But that's not what this verse is talking about. I believe there's a moment when everybody comes face to face. Everybody who's heard the gospel will suddenly be confronted, and they'll realize it, and they'll understand it in a way that brings them to the point of decision. It's no longer a matter of, is this true or isn't it? It's, it's true, am I going to commit to it? And what Peter is saying here is, for some people, when they come to that point of decision, what is going to cause them to step into that faith-based relationship, that saving relationship with Christ, is going to be you. They're like, whoa, wait a second, I understand this. Jesus is the Savior. Jesus died for the sins of the world, and I need that. But I need to confess him as Lord, and that means I'm committing my life to this. Do I know any Christians? Yes, I know Rainey. I know Becky. Are they a great example of that? Are they making this look like something I can do, something I want to do? Not those two, but you guys. No, I'm kidding. Of course you guys are. You're like, hey, man, I don't need that kind of responsibility. It's, it's on you. If you're a believer, you've got this responsibility. Peter's saying, live your life in such a way that when they look at your good works, they're like, that's something I can do. That's something that I can aspire to. That's an admirable life. 
and because of the way you live Jesus Christ out loud in their presence, they will make a decision to enter into that same saving relationship. Now, is that heavy? Yeah, it is. But who's really bearing the burden there? What did Jesus say? It's all him. You're just letting him live his life through you. Just like these Greeks in Jerusalem on that day, no matter how bad this world gets, no matter how unchristian this world seems, you had better believe me, people. I mean everybody. I know I've been looking at the youth a lot tonight. People still want to see Jesus. I just love that line. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Are they seeing him in you? Is there anything about your life that allows them to see Jesus? Is there anything about your confession, your, what the Bible calls your conversation, what we would call your way of life, that would cause people to seek you out if they want to know more about Jesus? Or that if people start talking about Christianity, they say, I know, I know some good Christians. Here's a, here's a quote. That I've, ne- I've never been really fond of it, and I've got to be careful because I can kind of, I could chase this rabbit for a while, but I won't. But Gandhi, who, who is a very influential individual in uh, India and what is now Pakistan, uh, but, but a Hindu. But here's a guy who, had he embraced Christianity, almost certainly would have led millions of Indian people to the Lord. And there were some things about his lifestyle that a lot of people thought would would gel nicely with Christianity. But in a conversation, the short version of this quote goes simply like this, I like your Christ, I don't like your Christians. The longer version, and the first one I heard, went like this, I have uh, read the Bible, I've studied the life of Jesus and found him to be a fascinating man. I might perhaps have become a Christian had I never met one. Now, I have to tell you two things very quickly. One is, I would not want to be Gandhi if, and have that as my excuse when I'm standing before Jesus Christ as judge of the earth. But, I also wouldn't want to be one of the Christians he met that led him to make that statement. I want to live my life in such a way that when somebody meets me, I'm not the reason they don't become a Christian. I want to be a reason where they, I want to be at least one step in the process where they're like, yeah, yeah, Scott Millis spoke something into my life. Scott Millis lived his life in such a way that made me admire Christianity, even if I didn't like all of them, even if I didn't agree with some of the teachings, I can't say that he didn't live his life consistently. There are a lot of blessings that belong to us as believers. There's no question about it. And it's right and proper that we celebrate those things. But every now and then we also have to look at different streams of truth in this thing. And one of them is this. Uh, Sometimes people choose against Christ not because they don't find him compelling, not because they are, that, they, that there's some deep struggle with the whole truth issue, but because they look at Christianity and think, it's just too hard. Chester, uh, G.K. Chesterton said that. He said the, 
the trouble with Christianity is not that it has been tried and found wanting, but that it has been found difficult and left untried. Christianity is not for wussies. That's the message version. It takes strength. It takes courage. You think, well, that leaves me out. I'm weak and I'm scared. But he gives you the strength and he gives you the courage. He gives you everything you need to follow him. Once you recognize it as true, don't deny it. So a couple invitations for you. Number one, if you've never made Jesus Christ your Lord, I referenced this, now I'll quote it. Romans 10, 9 says, If you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in your heart God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you've never been saved because you've never made that confession, I'm inviting you to get saved tonight. As soon as we start singing, I want you to come down let me pray with you. If you're a believer or you think you are because you prayed that prayer, I asked Jesus in my heart, I wanted to be saved, but you know in your heart of hearts that you have not been living the life we've been describing tonight and you want to, maybe you need to rededicate yourself. Maybe you need to recommit. Maybe you're like, Scott, I want to. I've never not wanted to. I lack the boldness. We see them praying for boldness in in, in, in the early chapters of Acts, and God answers them. And he answers them so powerfully, the place shakes. And if you would just like me to agree with you, for Scott, I just want to do better at this. I've never doubted Jesus Christ. I've never doubted my salvation. I just want to be stronger. I want to be better. Come up here and let me pray with you. I'll just pray with you for boldness. I'll just agree with you. You know, there's power in agreement. You need to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. That's where that boldness and power comes from. Maybe you say, I've been, I've been saved. I asked Jesus into my heart, but I've never been filled with the Spirit. Jesus said, that's where you receive the power to be my witnesses. It is inconsistent. And you're deceived if you say, you know what? I never want to be a, a bold witness for Christ. I just want to be saved. You can't have it. You, it, it. He doesn't give you that option. He says, if I'm going to be your Savior, I'm going to be your Lord, and I'm going to use you. So if you want to yield yourself to him tonight, be used in new, bigger ways, be refilled, filled with boldness, come up here and let me pray with you. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Father, we know there's a world out there that wants to see Jesus. And our prayer, Lord God, is that you fill us afresh with your Holy Spirit so that they see Jesus in us. So that when they ask us, we have the right answers. Give us wisdom, give us boldness, and give us opportunities to share that wisdom exercise that boldness for the gospel. I pray, Lord, if there's anybody in here who needs salvation, who's never come to that uh, saving relationship through the finished work of Jesus Christ, that you would convict them of their need and grant them the boldness, the wisdom, the humility to come and receive that gift tonight. And that you would also move on anybody in here who needs to respond, to recommit, to be baptized in the Holy Spirit, to receive fresh boldness. Cause them just to block everything out that's keeping them from making that step and make that change tonight, Lord God. Thank you for your presence in this place. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for doing what only you can do. Thank you for your word, Lord God. Thank you for this service and everything that you've spoken to us, every way you desire to change us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope that this message encouraged and equipped you in your walk with Christ. 
Make sure to follow us on Facebook or Instagram to stay updated with what's going on at Living Word Family Church. Have a great day.